I'd like us to um, to go back to uh, the chapter that we uh, looked at on, on Sunday morning. It's to Mark chapter 9 that I'd like us to spend uh, just a couple of moments on uh, this evening. And uh, as has been said tonight, we've, for the last... Um, the last time I was here on a, on a Sunday before uh, last week was in March, and in March we started looking uh, on, a, on that Sunday morning and on that Thursday uh, at the, the Mount of Transfiguration experience in Mark chapter 9, uh, and those uh, four questions that David rightly identified I asked of the, the passage of scripture, why now, uh, why Elijah? Why Moses and why God? Now, when I was in the ch- in Emmanuel, David used to give me some stick about recapping when I used to do series. But I think a recap is in order because it's, it was March that we started this. So we did. Um, we asked the question, "Why now? Why was Jesus transfigured now?" And we we saw that it um, his glory was displayed when thoughts and conversations turned towards Calvary. Um, then we asked why Elijah and we saw together that it was Elijah who spoke the word of God and yet here on the the Mount of Transfiguration he is in conversation with Jesus who is the word of God and we could be reminded then that God who in times past spoke in various ways to our fathers through the prophets has in these last days spoken to us through a son. And then on Sunday morning, we asked the third of our questions, well, why Moses? And we looked at him, and we saw that he was the lawgiver, the law which reveals the character of God and the character of humanity. It reveals the purity and the holiness of God and the sinfulness and difference of humanity, men and women like us. We saw then on Sunday, Moses speaking with Jesus, who fulfills the law, and becomes a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, mine and your sins, along with those. So we've looked at three of our questions, the why now, the why Elijah, and the why Moses. This evening then, I want to, um, to finish off by looking at the question, why God? And I want to read um, Mark 9 and verse 2, and I'm going to read from verse 2 uh, until verse 8. Mark 9, starting at verse 2. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one any more, but only Jesus with themselves. And so tonight... I'd like to end our little look at this uh, lovely passage from Mark chapter 9. And I don't know if I share with you way back in March that we are, we are looking at, at Mark, I told you a number of times on a, on a Sunday morning, 
uh, in the bush and as, as we finished chapter really enjoyed chapter 8 and uh, we finished chapter 8 and I think it was about um, coming up to Christmas last year and then I took a bit of a break from, from looking at Mark and looked at a few other things we looked at, at some things over Christmas and the beginning of the new year and it, it was really to give me an opportunity to get my mind around the, the Mount of Transfiguration story because it's, it's not one that leaps off the page to me and isn't, I think everybody has their favourite passages of scripture and their favourite of the encounters that Jesus has in the Gospels and, and their favourite of the Gospel stories and I certainly do and the Mount of Transfiguration wasn't one of them at all. But as I looked at it, and as I've read it, and as I've preached on it a number of times, uh, both up in the bush and here, it has become one of my favourite stories. And I think from now on, whenever I reach Mark chapter 9, or whenever I read it in, in Matthew, I'll always, it'll always bring a smile to my face, because it says so much about the person and the ministry of Jesus. And so to end those, those couple of verses that we've, we've looked at tonight, we ask ourselves the question, why God? Because as we read that last passage of, of scripture that we read tonight, the last few verses, we are looking at first of all the words of Peter and then the words of God himself. And we have over these last uh, four times that we have looked at the Mount of Transfiguration, we've looked at Peter and James and John as eyewitnesses to an event. And I think it, as, as the more you look at it and the more you, you think about it, the more you come to the, the idea that here are these three men who are eyewitness to something that they have no idea what they are really looking at. And they are, they are looking at something that they can't really take in. And perhaps they are looking at it the way I used to look at the Mount of Transfiguration story before I spent some time looking at it. As, as you look at it, it, it doesn't seem to tell you something obvious. Because as you look at it, you have this shining, exceedingly white clothes of Jesus. You have Elijah, who had been dead and gone for hundreds of years. And you have Moses, who has been dead and gone for hundreds of years. And you can imagine these ordinary men from, uh, from Galilee, these fishermen, thinking to themselves, how on earth have we ended up here? Three years ago we were getting on with our lives and we were, we were humble and, and no one knew us. We weren't important and outside of our families or outside of our village no one knew who we were and we were trying to get through life as best we could and we were trying to, to make a living as best we could and, and what was on our hearts and our minds was putting food on tables and putting roofs over heads and, and, and things like that and all of a sudden after these three years we find ourselves up a mountain looking at Jesus, the Messiah we know him to be with exceedingly white, unearthly, heavenly, divine garments on. We are looking at Elijah, and we are looking at Moses. You know, and as, as you read the story, particularly the bits that we, we are looking at tonight, you get the idea that, that they have no idea what's happening here. In fact, it would take them years and years and years, which is why I asked my father to read 2 Peter chapter 1. Because there's Peter and the years have gone by. And then he starts to take in 
all the things that happened to him here in Mark chapter 9. You get the idea, you get the understanding that Peter, James and John are eyewitness to a scene that they can't really take in. And they have a great deal of difficulty understanding. You know, their experience, these three men, is one of confusion and one of bewilderment and one even of fear as they look at this great scene that is unfolding before them. And nowhere in the whole of the passage that we've read this evening is that confusion and that bewilderment displayed any more clearly than in verse 5. Now in verse 5, these three men have seen these amazing, strange, bewildering things happening before their eyes. They've seen the garments, they've seen Elijah, they've seen Moses, they've heard the conversation that they have with Jesus and you can imagine them sort of quivering and sitting down on the grass and thinking well what do, what, what do we do now you know we are, are on our, we are looking at this how do we take this in and what role do we have and what should we do in it all now James and John have the good sense to keep quiet and just to look but Peter you could never accuse him of having good sense because Peter is the one who jumps in and Peter is the one who rushes in where angels fear to tread and true to form Peter has been quiet for too long and even though he doesn't understand and even though he, he can't come to terms with and can't take in the things that he's seeing he feels he has to make some kind of response he has to say something and verse 5 says Peter answered and said to Jesus Rabbi it is good for us to be here uh, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. No, and, and Mark, being as diplomatic as I think he can be, sort of excuses Peter a little bit and says he didn't know what to say because he was greatly afraid. You know, Mark, right in under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is kind, I think to Peter he doesn't know what to say because he's greatly afraid I wonder if the other two would have thumped him and dug him in the in the ribs and shut up for goodness sake because he doesn't know what to say but he feels he has to say something so great and so wonderful are the things that he sees around him it's good for us to be here he addresses Jesus good for us to be here Lord Good for us to be here, Rabbi. Let us make three tabernacles, one each for you all. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, the, the word tabernacle is a, a very, very Christian word, I think. It's not used in, in any other circumstance, but in the Christian faith for us, I suppose. And if you were to ask anyone who isn't a Christian and a, and a regular church attender, they would struggle to figure out what the word tabernacle means. But I know what it, what it means, and I've known about tabernacles since I was a kid. And, you know, the word tabernacle is, has got this magical, um, mystical air to it. Because I can remember going into my mother and father's bedroom when I was little, and, and my father had a picture of, of a, the tabernacle on the wall. I used to look at it all the time and think, well, that looks, that, I don't really know what it is, but it looks good. Mm -hmm. It lo looks like something. It looks important. 
you know, and, and I wasn't in the, the services, but I, I think in, in this church they had uh, people come, a pastor come, and, and, and build a model of the tabernacle from Exodus. It sounds a really good and interesting and important word. Let us build a tabernacle for you, says Peter. And so perhaps on, on first thinking we would think, well, well he is glorifying here and, and he is uh, ascribing greatness. And, and perhaps this is the way to go. And what might have sounded a little bit stupid, perhaps Peter is in the right turn. He, he's got a point. You know, the word tabernacle, when you, you bring it down to what it really means, it's not fancy at all, although it can be. It really means a tent or a temporary dwelling place. And to, a, to an Israelite like Peter, it would have made, meant the most basic of dwelling places. Somewhere temporary that would keep you dry or, or give you a place to be out of the wind or out of the rain. It would be, have been made of branches and or of animal skins or something like that a, a temporary shelter and a temporary place to be if you were to look at the Old Testament though when, that very often when the word tabernacle was used it had a significance in worship and so a tabernacle had a significance in worship as I said there was a tabernacle in Exodus that was erected as the dwelling place of the presence of God while Israel wandered through the wilderness. If we were to go into the book of Acts tonight, then we were to look at Stephen's sermon just before he was murdered, before he was martyred. He spoke of Israel taking up the tabernacles of false gods. And so when you talk about a tabernacle, there is this element or, or this uh, significance of worship. And so to my mind as I read these verses this evening, Peter doesn't understand what's happening. He can't take in everything that's going on, but he realises that something is happening. And it's something way out of the ordinary, and it's something great, and it's something wonderful, and it's something special. And it's something with God's presence and God's fingerprints all over it. You know, this, I can't take in everything, thinks Peter, but I know something wonderful is going on. And I know God's presence is here with us. And so realizing that something special was happening, what he was saying to Jesus is, let's erect some kind of tabernacle to, to you three, to you Jesus, to you Elijah, to you, Mo, to you Moses, so that me and James and John, we can revere you, or we can glorify you, or we can realise how wonderful you are, perhaps even that we can worship you. You know, this is the, the, the heart of Peter, and you can't really criticise him too much, because he's out, out of his comfort zone, he doesn't understand what was going on, and if I was in his shoes, I wouldn't understand either. You know, and it's perhaps understandable that, that Peter wants to revere these three men that he sees standing before him. Because this was Jesus, and yes, we know all about Jesus, but this was Elijah too, and Moses. And we, have, we talked about them over these last three services, and we said that 
you know, that, that there's no one like them in all of the Jewish faith, that they stand out on their own, these two men. They are revered by all of Israel and by every Jew, I suppose, who has ever taken his or her religion seriously. They are respected, they are looked up to, they are learned about since childhood, and now Peter, James and John, these Israelite men, are looking at them, speaking with Jesus, they are Rabbi, they are Messiah, who they are starting to come to terms with, who he really is. Let's build three tabernacles, says Peter. You know, and it's perhaps understandable that he would want to revere or, or glorify or tell these three men just how great they are and just how wonderful they are. You know, and it's, it's perhaps understandable and it's difficult to criticise him too much when you look at it like that. And yet what it did, this suggestion of Peter, as you read Mark chapter 9, what it does is to put Jesus and Moses and Elijah on the same level. Now it's a wonderful level. It's a glorious level. It's a, um, a revered level. But it's the same level. And here is Peter saying, look, I'm going to treat you wonderfully, and I'm going to respect you, and I'm going to revere you and look up to you, but all on the same level. He treated them in exactly the same way. This is what Peter is saying. Jesus, you are wonderful. Elijah, you are wonderful. Moses, you are wonderful too. Let's build three tabernacles for you. You know, again, easy to understand. Because Moses is wonderful. Now, how many times have, have we sat in churches, in our Christian lives, listening to sermons on Moses and thinking, what a great man this is. What a wonderful man this is. Hero of faith, obedient to God, used of God in the most wonderful of ways, led his people out of slavery to the brink of the promised land. Moses is great. Moses is wonderful. And then you look over to his left or right, and there's Elijah. You think, well, Elijah is wonderful too. He's great. And he's wonderful. Elijah, brave Elijah. Courageous Elijah. Elijah who stood up to an evil king and put himself in great danger when no one else would. Elijah who was zealous for the name and the reputation of God and stood alone for him. Elijah who gave the word of God to the people of the nation when they were slipping away and turning away from him. There is nothing at all wrong with these two men. And they are worthy of respect. And they are worthy, perhaps, of the title great and wonderful. The problem begins when you put them on the same level as Jesus. And here is Peter's problem in a nutshell. When you start to treat them the same way you treat him, then you run into problems. You know, in anyone else's company, they would have been great. And they would have been wonderful. If Abraham had been there, yes, put them on, on his level. If David had been there, or Samuel had been there, yes, put all those 
on his level. The problem was they stood next to Jesus. And when you start to treat anyone the same as Jesus, you run into all sorts of problems. Because for as wonderful as they were, and as great as Elijah is, and Moses is, they are not like Jesus. They are not perfect like he is perfect. And they are not sinless like he is sinless. And they are not holy like him. And they are not blameless like him. And they are not spotless like him. When he stands next to them, they became, become men who stand in need of a saviour exactly the same as you and me. When they stand next to Jesus, they don't rise to his level, they're on our level. They're the same as the rest of us. They are men and women who are in need, in desperate need, of a saviour. You know, on the one hand you had Moses who gave the law, but couldn't keep the law. On the other hand you had Elijah who gave the word of God, but couldn't live or become the word of God. They are part of humanity, and like you and me, they stand in desperate need of a saviour, they stand in desperate need of a sacrifice. Those two men... And then in the middle of them, you have Jesus. And the difference between these two men and Jesus couldn't be more obvious. Because you have Jesus who fulfills the law. And you have Jesus who is the word of God. You have Jesus who is pure and holy and righteous. Who is sinless without spot or blemish. You have Jesus who has no need whatsoever of mercy. You have Jesus who has absolutely no need of the grace that we love and think is so amazing because there is no fault in him. There is no blemish in him. There is no failure in him. There is no stumbling in him. Jesus who has no need of a saviour. Jesus who has no need of a sacrifice. Now to, when you, you realise who these three men are, to put them together and to view them on the same level and to think of them in the same way and on the same level is ridiculous. It's absurd. And it's a nonsense. You know, and it's Peter's massive mistake. He didn't know what to say, says Mark. For they were greatly afraid. And what he says is totally wrong. His statement about making three tabernacles, putting these three men on a level together, is absurd. And it's ridiculous. And it's a nonsense. And yet... You know, speaking as a Christian today, in 2019, so many people today are making exactly the same mistake as Peter made all those years ago. Non-Christian and even Christian alike are repeating that nonsense of a mistake that Peter made all those years ago. 
I was walking through Cardiff um, Queen Street a number of years ago and there was a, a stall there as you, you walk through Cardiff now Cardiff is a is this big mixture of so many ideas and so many philosophies and so many views when I, I, when I was a student I went to London and, and London was, was an awful lot like that but Cardiff has be, definitely become that in the last couple of, of years as I walk through Queen Street quite regular and you get different opinions and people trying to convince you of different messages when you walk a hundred yards up the street you get five different ideas of life and I was walking um, up this, this street once and there, was, there were two guys who were Muslims and they had a stall in front of them with some literature on it and they, up at the front of their stall was a, um, like a, a poster and it said Prophets of Islam and it listed the Prophets of Islam and I caught, it caught my eye because I knew them <laughs> which is a bit, a bit worrying Abraham was there uh, Noah was there Elijah was there Moses was there David was there loads of people were there and, and right in the middle of them was Jesus a prophet of God you know, and revered and respected and held up but held up like Abraham or held up like Samuel or held up like Moses or Elijah no that is nonsense it's ridiculous it's absurd to put him on the same level as anyone else because every other person in that list that I saw was in desperate need of a saviour bar one you don't want to put him on that level repeats the mistake of Peter and it's nonsense it's ridiculous. It's absurd. You know, John chapter, in John chapter 8, Jesus talks about Abraham and tells us that Abraham rejoiced to see his day. Rejoiced to see the day of his saviour. You know, if Abraham were here tonight, he wouldn't want anyone to put him on the same level as his saviour, as his redeemer. You know, yet very often, even as Christians, we can be guilty of doing the same thing. Perhaps not putting Jesus on the same level as, as Moses, or Elijah, or David, or Samuel. But certainly we can put other things up alongside him. And we can think, Lord, we, we are so grateful for everything you've done for our salvation. But to really make sure... And to really make my salvation clear and plain and guaranteed, I'm going to put other things alongside it. Now we could put the law alongside of Jesus. We could put prophecy alongside of Jesus. We could put prayer alongside of Jesus. We could put our energy and our striving and our purity and our morality up alongside of Jesus in the same way that Peter does let's build three tabernacles <coughs> one for each of you you know even as Christians we can be guilty of that yes the blood of Jesus washes away my sin but in order to be really saved I've got to keep the law I've got to keep the ten commandments 
I've got to pray a number of times a week and in a certain way. I've got to read the Bible a certain amount of times a week. I've got to do this or I've got to do that. I've got to put these other things up on the same level as him. It's easy for you and me to do. But when you look at this story, that is a nonsense. It's ridiculous. It's absurd to put Christ alongside what I can do for God. Now Paul tells us, by grace we are saved. Through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works that any man should boast. Now even as Christians, this evening, we can learn this lesson from Peter. Nothing wrong with prayer. Nothing wrong with reading his word. Nothing wrong with energy. Nothing wrong with purity. Nothing wrong with morality. But when we put it on the same level of Jesus, it becomes absurd. It becomes a nonsense. It becomes ridiculous. Now back on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter in his fear and in his confusion has made a mistake. Now it's an understandable mistake. And it's a mistake that perhaps we would have made in his place. But it's a big mistake. And it's an important mistake. And in this passage, God responds to the mistake of Peter. You know, put yourself in Peter's shoes now. He doesn't know what to say, but he's greatly afraid. He says something, and immediately he says it, God, from heaven, responds. I I remember a a good number of years ago, having an argument with my grandfather after a, a Thursday, and because I had said in my sermon that the audible voice of God from heaven is the rarest of things. That it happens a handful of times in all of the scriptures. Now he disagreed with me and thought that it wasn't such a rare event. But I still think it's a, a rare event. And as you look through the Bible, the amount of times that God has spoken from heaven and been heard on earth by more than one person at the same time I think is rare indeed now if you look through the Bible and come up with more than ten then please let me know because I might preach this sermon again but it's rare it's not a usual thing for God to do to break open the heavens and speak to the world and more than one person hear him at the time but he does hear And it's in response to Peter's statement. This is how Mark describes it. And a cloud came and overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. You know, Peter, Peter, James and John would have been quaking, I'm sure, at that. Peter, I can't imagine what he goes through as he sees this um, cloud that overshadows them, as he hears this 
voice, this shout from heaven. You know, and to me, as I read it there, God is responding directly to the statement of Peter. Peter puts Jesus on the same level of Moses and Elijah, and straight away, God responds. A cloud has come, overshadowed them. God's presence was revealed in the, in the cloud, we remember, in the book of Exodus. And a voice comes out of this cloud and says, This is my beloved Son, hear him. You know, to me, this is God shouting down at these three disciples and saying to them, This is Jesus, and there's no one like him. This is my son, this is Jesus, and there is no one like him. It's a rare event in the Bible that God would do such a thing, but he does such a thing here to tell three men, this is Jesus, my son. Don't mix him up with anyone else. This is Jesus, my son, and he's not like anyone else. This is Jesus, my son, and there is no one who is like him. This is Jesus, my son, and he alone fulfills the law, and there is no need for Moses now. This is Jesus, my son, and he alone is the word of God, and there is no need for Elijah now. This is Jesus, my son, and there is no need for anyone else to point me in the direction of God, to describe God, or to relate God to me. This is Jesus, my son, and there is no need for anyone except him. There's no need of a tabernacle now. There's no need of a temple now. There's no need of a pilgrimage to Jerusalem now. God is here with you and me in the person of his son. You know, here is a voice saying, I haven't sent a messenger. I haven't sent a prophet. I haven't sent a servant. These are the last days and I've sent my son. Amen. These are the last days and I'm speaking through my son. You know, for you and me tonight, that is a wonderful thing. An amazing thing that here is Jesus and he stands with us. Here is God and he has lived for us. Here is God and he has died for us. Here is God and he ever lives to intercede for you and for me. That God is pleased to make known the riches of his glory, of this mystery among the Gentiles. Christ in you. Christ in me, the hope of glory. This is my beloved son, says God, hear him. You know, you can imagine these three men, with seeing all that they've seen, the, the dazzling white clothes, and then Mo and Elijah, then Moses, then this great cloud overshadowing them in the presence of God, and the voice from heaven 
you know, they must have just thrown themselves to the ground, put their hands over their head and wished it would all go away. They throw themselves on the ground, they put their hands over their head and they wait there for it all to go away. You know, you can imagine the three of them as they are doing that, as they are lying there. And all this is going on around them. The voice from heaven, then silence. I don't know how, how long it would have taken them to open their eyes again. A while, I would have thought. And when they did, perhaps they would have looked through their fingers as they tentatively open their eyes. And they look up and they see Jesus standing there on his own. That's how our passage ends. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. No Elijah, no Moses, no cloud, no voice from heaven. Just Jesus on his own. You know, the voice of God would say to them, He is enough on his own. This is Jesus, my beloved son. Hear him. He is enough on his own. There's no need for Elijah. There's no need for Moses. There's no need for a cloud. There's not even any need for a voice from heaven. As long as Christ is there, that's enough. I suppose that the challenge is to you and me as we finish tonight, as we come to an end of this lovely little passage of Scripture, is to answer that or ask that question ourselves. Is he enough? Is he enough for me? Is he enough for you? Is he enough to be the saviour that I need him to be? Is he greater than Elijah? Is he greater than Moses? Is he enough for me? Now as I read his word this evening, I realise that he is God's own son. And I realise that he is sinless and pure and holy. And I realise that not long after Mark chapter 9, he goes to the cross of Calvary with all his purity and his holiness and he takes upon himself my sin and shame and guilt and the sins of the whole world. And I read on that he died there for my sin and the sins of the whole world. And I read on some more to realise that the stone of his tomb was rolled away and to glorious new life he was risen again I can say looking at the evidence of the things that we have read over these last four services and to look at his crucifixion and his resurrection he's enough he's enough for me he's enough to be the saviour that I so desperately need he's enough to be a saviour who can break the shackles of sin in my life and give me his purity and his holiness and his right to be called a child of God. He's enough. You know, the challenge goes out then 
is he enough for me to come back down this mountain and go to the town and go to the village and go to Jerusalem is he enough for me in my day to day life is he enough for me to take into the world with me and I said earlier on that I think the, the voice of God speaking audibly from heaven so that more than one person can hear is a rare thing indeed and it comes about here when someone makes the mistake of putting Jesus alongside other things or other people now if that is true we could ask ourselves the question today, uh, this, this evening if people are still making that mistake well, why isn't God shouting down from heaven now? And why didn't God shout down from heaven in Cardiff when I walked past that store and so many other people did? Why doesn't God shout from heaven when we put up the law or we put up prayer or we put up church attendance or whatever it might be alongside Jesus? No, the answer I think is a very challenging one. It's because this Saviour says to us before he returns to his Father... I want you to be my witnesses. I want you to tell people that I'm enough. You know, and so, in a very real way, it, it's not the responsibility of God anymore to shout down from heaven and tell people that his son is enough. He's given that responsibility to you and to me. Now, he's enough for me. And as I look at his word, that comes shining through, that he's enough for me. And I know in my heart that he's enough for Astra too. And he's enough for Tridak. But I also know in my heart that Tridak doesn't know that. And Astra doesn't know that. You know, the people that I brush shoulders with every day and I work with and I walk past in the street, they have no idea that Jesus is enough for them. No, it's a challenge to you and me, and perhaps a challenge that comes out of the Mount of Transfiguration. But here with these three men, they saw this extraordinary, wonderful thing, and they heard this voice of God, and they went back down from the mountain, back down to the village, back down to Israel, back down to Jerusalem, in a couple of months' time, these ordinary men would go out into all the world with the message that Jesus is enough. Amen. They would go to ordinary men and women and tell them that Jesus is enough. I know tonight that Jesus is enough because of one of these three men. You and I know that. You know, it's a, it's a responsibility and a challenge for you and me that as we have heard the voice of God as we have realised afresh that Jesus is enough for me and you that that knowledge wouldn't stay within our hearts and our minds and our spirits but it would be on our lips as well and in our mouths as well to be proclaimed and declared to a world that desperately needs to hear it he's enough for you and me and he has promised to be with us wherever we are. This wonderful Saviour, whose clothes 
clothed white, who spoke to Moses and spoke to Elijah, who God could say, This is my beloved son. Hear him. For his name's sake.